episode 239, How to Escape from Legal Purgatory When Collaborating. Today, I speak with Bill Tannenbaum from Polsinelli. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I am working on a collaborative endeavor right now where the BAA signing has literally taken a year. The whole project will likely take two weeks. I know I'm likely not going to shock anyone listening, but the legal side of any sale or install or collaboration or proposed interoperability can be a serious impediment when every venture takes literally months or even years. That's kind of the opposite of a fluid marketplace or fluid collaborative environment. And one of the reasons why organizations can't innovate even incrementally if that innovation involves any outside partners or alliances. This whole legal jungle can also be a big reason why organizations might stick with substandard vendors, even vendors who are clearly overcharging them in some cases, just because the hassle factor and expense of switching to a better option is real. So what's some practical advice to minimize the amount of time spent in BAA or contracting purgatory so that we can move forward with improving patient care and outcomes and being disciplined and efficient in the process in doing so? Today, I speak with Bill Tannenbaum from Polsinelli. Bill is Polsinelli's practice co-chair of healthcare technology and innovation. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Bill Tannenbaum. My pleasure to be here. Anyone who has had anything to do with health information technology knows and often the legal aspects of any given endeavor take just as long or longer than the technical aspects. So I am very pleased to speak with you today, Bill. Well, thank you. Before we get to the BAA portion of our chat, I did just want to spend a couple of minutes talking about collaboration and collaborative intellectual property, which is something I know you've spent a lot of time working in, where, you know, you've got two entities, both of them have their own sweet spots and they want to work together. And I know one of the things that you have said is that many people do the collaboration, joint ownership type agreements very, I'm going to say suboptimally. <laughs> do, you, do you want to talk about what the typical mistake is first? Sure. In a nutshell, if you're doing something on a joint basis, the common sense approach would be, well, if we jointly developed it, we should jointly own it. And the problem is you've now entered the world of IP and the world of IP has its own rules and they're in the statute, and they will lead to unexpected adverse business outcomes. So that means that you need to understand what the default positions are, and the bottom line is think about what you want to do, and then use a contract to override those default positions. What tends to happen? Like you said, the adverse outcomes. Like, give me a story here. Like, what goes horribly wrong if you share ownership of the IP? So let's take the following hypothetical. A and B enter into a joint development agreement, and they each bring their own technology, either their own pre-existing technology or their own skills. And the whole point of the uh, joint development agreement is to develop something that didn't exist before. So if you knew what you were going to have at the end, 
you wouldn't be doing the kind of collaborative improvements that you're going to do. So if you decide that whatever you do is going to be owned jointly and equally by each party, then, again, that seems kind of fair on its face. The adverse consequence is that under the law, each joint owner can grant a non-exclusive license, a non-exclusive right to some third party to use all of what both parties developed. So A and B have developed this brand new thing. They each have joint rights in it. And B can take that and grant the license to another entity, including another joint venture entity. And company A or institution A can't stop that. So what does that really mean? That means that all the money and all the effort that one company put into it can be given by the other joint owner to another company or to another joint venture without any compensation to the other company. So that basically means that if you've contributed R&D, you've now contributed R&D for free to your former partner's next business arrangement. Obviously, people don't expect that they are contributing free R&D to let the other guy profit. And that will be a surprise. It will not be what's intended, probably. And even if both parties don't intend it, somebody along the line will figure out that that's a right they have and they'll exercise it. But this seems like a conundrum, because then if you are jointly collaborating and jointly creating something together, then what's the right way to do it? So the basic way to do it is to figure out the business result that you want. And the wonder of intellectual property is if you understand how it really works, it's very flexible as a legal regime, and you can use all kinds of tools to get to where you want to go. So the first tool is a contract, and the second tool is a set of licenses. So in that hypothetical that we started with, what you would say is, for example, that company B can't take the jointly developed work and give it to either anyone, or if that sounds too broad, can't give it to someone who's identified as a competitor. And what you would do is you would just write that up in the contract and say, notwithstanding the statute, we hereby agree that A, B, and C will follow. So that's a pretty easy thing to do. There's some tricks from it from a legal point of view that I don't think we really have to get into, but that's how you solve the problem. So there's kind of no notion of ownership per se. It's just that both parties go into it and agree that anything that is developed on the other side, that both parties will have a license to use it in some context. Well, you could do one of two things. You can maintain joint ownership. We can get to that. That's a problem down the road just for the handling of intellectual property. So if you go that route and say, okay, we are going to jointly own it, then you divide up what the it is and say, I can use the it for patient care, and I can use the it for the development of Internet of Things. And you can divide it into fields of use and just allocate fields of use to different parties. Alternatively, you can say, you know, this is such a problem with joint ownership that we're not going to go that route. And we're going to say that while the parties jointly develop something for intellectual property purposes or institutional purposes, we're going to say, okay, Company A can own everything. However, Company A grants Company B a very broad license. And that way, Company B gets the practical benefit of being able to use the collaborative developments. And both parties are protected in the following situation, which would be, how do you get a patent on this? Because the patent office is only going to want to deal with one party and one set of lawyers. 
So it would be impossible, you know, in almost all circumstances to have both parties try and control the patent administration. And we call it patent prosecution, but that's the process for obtaining a patent. And then the patent rights will, by license, go to party B. Well, let me ask you this then, because this is something that I've actually heard somebody talking about just recently. So it is quite apropos where let's just say party B. B was looking to be acquired and they wanted to have equity in the thing because there was a sense that whatever the thing was would increase the acquisition value. How does that kind of play? Because I know that's a very common scenario. I mean, obviously, it just randomly came up the other day. So, like, how does that fold into this? Well, that's where you have to be really careful, right? Because if you go back to the original hypothetical, Company A contributes something of value that allows Company B to be acquired, have an exit strategy, and Company A is just sitting on the sideline going, whoa, I contributed all this value that led to this huge exit strategy. And if I'm lucky, I'll get a recognition on it on some website, and I won't get any money out of it. So the answer is you start being a lawyer, right? You start doing clever things, and you start saying, okay, if this happens, then Company A actually gets some equity. Or company A has some veto rights over who gets, you know, to do that transaction. Think about it from a practical business and technical sense as to what you want to have happen and then plan for it. And then here's where you come into the kind of magic of lawyering, right? Because what lawyers basically do is say, what if, what if, what if? And then you answer each what if, and that leads to another what if. And eventually you've done enough what if, so you just stop. But You want to do enough what ifs so that at step five, you know where things are and you can go back and make step one put you on the right rather than the wrong path. On the business side, yes, you're supposed to ask why five times. And on the lawyer side, it sounds like you ask what if five times. So I'm I'm sensing a theme. Yeah. And the what if is like what could go wrong, right? Or what could be unexpected? And what haven't we covered? So in this hypothetical, would be great. You can grant licenses and you will give us some small percentage of the fee. That's terrific. If you sell a company, then you're not granted a license. So everybody's expectation that you're going to get money out of that is now misplaced because, well, we set up this whole structure for a license remuneration thing, but we didn't do a license transaction. Therefore, we don't owe company A anything. You know, So the job of company A is to kind of think through and go, okay, company B is in this business and something along the spectrum of A, B, and C could happen. And how do we cover A? How do we cover B? How do we cover C? What else on this topic, Bill? So now we get back into the kind of metaphysical part of intellectual property law. There are several intellectual property regimes. There is patents, which covers devices that do things and software that acts like a device and does something. Then there's copyright, which in the technical world covers the code for software. And then there are trade secrets. The interesting part of collaborative improvements is that you have overlapping parts of intellectual property regimes that apply to the same thing. So let's just take an easy case that you have an IoT device that's got some software-enabled functionality and some open source just to make it interesting. When you jointly develop this, you have a question, okay? Have you jointly developed the patents? Have you jointly developed the copyrights? Have you jointly developed the trade secrets? The answer will be, of course, it depends, which no one likes to hear from a lawyer, but that's the answer. And because of the rules of patent inventorship versus copyright authorship, it may well be that there, in fact, is no joint ownership. That is, one company wrote the code, so they are the sole owner of the copyright. 
another company invented the gizmo, and they are the owner of the patent in the gizmo. So when you say joint ownership, it might be wrong because there may in fact be no joint ownership. And that's a place where you have to go back and say, okay, we are looking at this thing as a combination of machinery and code, and therefore we by contract are going to consider this to be one big asset. And even if joint ownership doesn't apply, because each party has not equally contributed to the software part or the device part, we're going to form an agreement among ourselves and buy it in a contract and then share in the future commercialization of the whole thing. Yeah. And that makes sense, because generally speaking, you don't collaborate with people who do exactly the same thing that you do. You've got one party that is, as you just said, developing the software, and you've got another party that's doing the operationalizing or business processes or whatever. So you kind of say, OK, well, you own this and you own this and we can jointly sell it or something. Yeah. And that's the whole point is that it's the combination that has the value, right? If you're both doing this for you know a good commercial purpose or even for patient improvement and just basic healthcare, the whole point is to have a software and a device component and something that doesn't exist. So it would be you know some feature of a smartphone or some feature of Alexa. And then if you're going to go do this, then the lawyer's going to sit down and say, okay, you've each contributed your own background IP and taking that in combination plus the new stuff, then how are we going to maintain our IP rights even after we've commercialized this? The main ideas that we've been talking about here are they're just full of common sense. It's tough to jointly own something. You can get yourself in a bunch of different fandangos unintentionally because of that arrangement. And it's good to think through what exactly is each party contributing and do they own what they contribute? And then how are you working together to commercialize it? And then also taking into account the eventualities such as what if one party gets sold or there's a changing of the guard or, you know, what are you going to do in, in those kind of circumstances? So I feel like I have a better understanding of this bill thanks to your articulation. Well, thanks. I'm glad that worked. And, and the final thing I'll say is, you know, I said that you can have unexpected results. But if you start from the point of view that you want to have a fair result, then it's kind of easy to work back from fairness to the legal structures. What you don't want to do is think you have a fair result and then build in some option for someone to make it unfair. Moving on to data, which I think is an interesting follow on to the collaboration conversation, because in every collaboration, data is definitely on the move. What needs to be in place from a legal perspective for data to transfer around? Number one is everybody thinks they own all the data. Number two, it's hard to have a discussion about it because people are afraid to give up ownership of something because they don't know what they're giving up. So that generally results in people at the negotiating table just going in circles. So there's a real problem with that because data ownership doesn't fit very well within any legal regime. Data itself, a piece of data is not copyrightable. A database is copyrightable as long as it's got some sufficient attributes. And then when you start running it through machine learning, then it kind of gets more protectable. And then eventually it gets to be the problem of, well, if the machine creates it, is it copyrightable? Because copyrightable requires originality and originality requires a human being. Pretty soon you end up in Alice in Wonderland territory. <laughs> so what do you do now, today, when the stuff hasn't been sorted out is a legal matter? You want to tell the story about the hospital bed, which I thought was very insightful or a very good articulation of kind of the challenges here. 
Oh, hospital beds are great because, you know, you can put a hospital bed up against a Tesla and decide which is a cooler device. And I would vote on the hospital bed. This thing is a giant data generator and it sends data all over the hospital. So it periodically sends vital signs to uh, the EHR system, and then it receives information. And the information comes, and then a doctor walks in the room, and the bed tells the doctor, you know, here's some information you need to know at the point of treatment that this bed has been collecting for the last 24 hours, and here's what's happened. Here's the trends, here's the spikes, here's the abnormalities. Hospital beds really can be viewed as data as a service. And it's just sending all kinds of data to all kinds of places and receiving it. Then, of course, and, and you're probably going to ask me this. So, Bill, what is the business associate aspect of a hospital bed? Stacy, I'm glad you asked me that question. <laughs> this is shaking out to be a great interview, Bill. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> just sitting here drinking my coffee. Keep going. And so, uh, so what is a business associate? The whole point, a business associate has to help the covered entity protect its obligations under the HIPAA security and privacy rule to protect the storage and transmission of patient electronic health information. So now you've got a bed, and the bed is doing all the cool things I talked about. It probably is a business associate, or at least however you get to the fact that the vendor of the bed is a business associate. That means they have to sign a business associate agreement. And then that gets into the question of where you actually started. Okay, who owns all this data now? Is it the bed? Is it the hospital? Is it the patient? Is it the research institution that's pulling the data out and aggregating it? And the answer basically is yes. Yes to all those people. And then it becomes a negotiation because the hospital is going to say, well, it started with the patient, but as between us and the business associate, it's the hospital's data. So you start with a hospital bed, you end up with a data device, and then you end up with HIPAA obligations, which generate who can use what data for what purpose down the road. Take that, Tesla. <laughs> I'm inferring from what you're saying, these conversations are often a barrier to, let's just say, things getting done, or, or in some certain cases, the right things getting done, that everyone cites data, you know, I can't give you the data. Well, let's just put it this way. Everybody's all about and very amenable to incoming data, but people aren't so amenable to outgoing data. And there could be some business reasons that, let's just say, aid and abet that point of view. But if I do have outgoing data, what do I need to do to ensure I'm not going to get in trouble? Well, number one, you got to start with HIPAA and you've just got to comply with HIPAA and you've got to make your agreements, enforce HIPAA obligations and make it really bad news if you're a business associate and you violate HIPAA. You got to start with liability, at least if you're a lawyer, right? And make sure you don't cross the line and end up with all kinds of regulatory sanctions and monetary penalties and reputational harm and all kinds of other good and fun things that no one wants to live through. The other thing you have to do is figure out in today's world, when all kinds of vendors of cool equipment and tech are getting involved in healthcare, because remember, it's 20% of the economy now, right? And healthcare tech is pretty cool. Internet of Things and healthcare is awesome. You know, whether it's wearables or, you know, ingestibles or body area networks. I mean, there's just all kinds of cool stuff coming. But if you're working in a healthcare institution, you've got to sit back and go, okay, this vendor is kind of new to healthcare. And is it their plan to aggregate all this data and monetize it and sell it? Who knows what that would be? It could be something as simple as saying that the average hospital stay for somebody going in for a gallbladder operation is X. But this may seem perfectly innocent to that vendor new to healthcare. 
but they just don't understand that that is a violation of all the regulatory rules under which their customer, the hospital, operates. So sometimes this is just a mismatch of expectations because one party doesn't understand the rules and the other party doesn't think to ask questions to make sure they're protecting themselves. So back to the bed example, which, and I wanted yeah. to ask you the BAA, because like, obviously what we just talked about is happening in the bed example. And it also goes back to, in the gallbladder example, who owned that data analytic? Was it the hospital that owned it? Or, or did the company that figured that out and provided the mechanism by which that data was collected in order to figure it out, own that data? How does that quagmire navigate you know, is that something that you figure out ahead of time, similarly to how we were talking about the collaborative IP? So every time you install a bed, it's also kind of a collaborative intellectual property operation? Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, the intellectual property status of data is a little iffy. So before you get into that, you would just say, OK, here's the deal. You're coming in, you're selling me a bed. The bed is going to actually be leased instead of sold, probably. Whatever. And now you're dealing with the data. The hospital will probably want and have the leverage and have the business model to say whatever the bed generates is owned by the hospital as a derivative right of the patient's information or otherwise. And then, you know, what could you do if you're the hospital? You could say, okay, we could do one of these data share or data use agreements, comply with the HIPAA requirements for each, which are different, and then say, okay, it's in the hospital's interest for all these geniuses at the bed company to go do something with this data and do some really cool analytics that the hospital can't do. And then, you know, whoever manufactures the bed and the data scientists in that company will go do their cool data analytics, come up with some stuff that's related to healthcare. It becomes more complicated than you think it is because you're not buying a bed. You're buying data and you're buying patient outcomes is what you're really buying. And so at the end of the day, you're right. You go back to the same kind of analysis we did with collaborative improvements and think through what is the good, cool stuff that can happen here and who should control it and who should benefit from it and how do we structure you know, these collaborative license agreements to make sure that the bed people are able to improve their beds and the doctors are able to improve healthcare, and wherever they overlap, we figured out a good, fair way to allocate it. Well, let me ask you this, Bill. It has been in the news a lot lately about patients are the nexus of all of their own data. Like they are the yeah. creator of their data and they should be able to have access to their data. Let's just say there was a patient in one of those beds and that patient is like, give me all my stuff. Does the hospital, and, and generally speaking, let's just finish this in the reality that we all know that we live in. Hospitals have said, oh, it's not yours, it's ours. And they refuse to give it to the patient. And that's been a historical just reality. Will that continue to fly? Like, is that actually legal? What's your thoughts? Well, I think it falls into the, uh, you know, the new TEFCA rules. And it's more giving patients access to their own data so they can give it to other healthcare providers. And they're just, you know, smarter patients and are able to port their data where it needs to go. Some of the overreaching by hospitals as to who owns what data I think will be just moderated by the regulators' views that let's go back to first principles here. People should be able to see their own data. Where it gets messy is when the data is aggregated, which is what you need science for, right? You want to look across 77 gallbladder operations and figure out how to optimize whatever you're focused on. So, you know, at that point, it's going to be at least de-identified or aggregated or something. And then that data set, 
which is really a database. Since it consists of so many patient information, does each patient have an interest in that database? I don't think so, but I don't think I know the answer to that exactly. But the point will be the hospital will have a better claim that it's aggregated all this data, it's complied with HIPAA, it's protected against wrongful disclosure of personal information, and then it can take that data set and do science and healthcare with it. But at the same time, you had mentioned earlier, because I was paying attention, Bill, that the data from the bed, for example, was uploaded into the EHR system. So if I'm the patient and I can say, I want my EHR record inclusive of all of that insight that the bed's stuck in there. Yeah, because what's the difference whether a nurse took your vital sign or the bed took your vital sign, right? It's the same thing. The technology that gets it into the EHR system shouldn't have any effect on whose it is. An x-ray is a picture of you, hopefully flattering, but (laughs) it's still an image of you. You know, there's been a kind of a trend that you kind of, you know, sign away your consent and then people don't tell you what the answer to your own medical status is. You know, it used to be that uh, doctors didn't think you would understand it or that they were afraid that the notes would be misleading and all kinds of stuff. But I think the world is kind of moving on. You know, everybody knows now that uh, when you use Google or any one of these search engines, you're not the customer, right? You provide the data and the customer is the advertising company. So now everybody is aware of how their data is being monetized by somebody else. And that's true in healthcare. And especially as healthcare gets complicated and people are getting different procedures from different places, the transportability of healthcare associated with the patient is going to kind of change how people think about things. You know, this new initiative in TEFCA is going to kind of, I think, give that a more enabling function. I've heard it said that if you're online and you're not paying to use a service, you're not the customer, you're the product. You've mentioned TEFCA several times now. There's a lot of talk about TEFCA. Could you just give the overview of what TEFCA is, where it is in the legal process, and what you think the likely impact will be? I think it's going to be a big impact. And I think it takes advantage of technology that didn't exist a couple of years ago. You know, storage of data is now cheap. Processing power is now cheap. Moving stuff around is fairly cheap. Encryption works. And what TEFCA is trying to do is create a network of network of networks so that all the individual networks that maintain healthcare information can talk to each other. And having networks talk to each other means that a doctor can get information out of all the different networks or a patient can get information out of all the different networks. It's designed to make data accessible, portable, and usable. And it's a big challenge, right? This is how do we actually make this work when we've got a balkanized IT system that is inherently not interoperable? And what the government is trying to do is say, okay, if you're going to run a database or a health information network, you've got to have certain attributes to it so that it will talk to others. And that's the initiative. Yeah, so I'm just looking online right now, and it's the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, which is a government office, and TEFCA stands for Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement. We are on the second draft, and and as you said, it seems to legislate interoperability. And that's what it's supposed to do, and it's also going to depend on FHIR, F-H-I-R, which is, you know, a protocol and APIs. And take a step back. It's a fairly impressive initiative that says, okay, now we can do this. Before we couldn't, now we can, and we should. The, you know, who's going to resist this? We'll find out. But the point is none of this free flow of information is going to work until we fix up the technical infrastructure. One objection that I've heard to TEFCA is from the HIEs. 
who are saying that they already have all these BAAs in place. And if TEFCA goes through, they're going to have to redo them all based on the new TEFCA standards. So it actually will set them back because they're going to have to go back and renegotiate things that took years to negotiate. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you have spent a lot of time negotiating BAAs and therefore you're going to blow up the healthcare system. Good luck. <laughs> you know, I mean, I get that there's an expense there, but they're fighting about expense, right? That can be dealt with. If they're fighting about really maintaining some proprietary rights and stuff, that's the fight. And that's the conflict between TEFCA and, you know, having proprietary closed systems. Because if you have a closed system, you can control access. And if you can control access, you can either monetize it or just, you know, get some other value from having a closed system. So I'm not hyper familiar with those groups. But, you know, it's hard to imagine any regulation that is 100% consistent with practices that were invented before new technology arose. So I don't think this is a shock that somebody's going to have to change their business model for the greater good. Bill, if someone is interested in learning more about the work that you do, where would you direct them? I would be bold and simple enough to direct them to my bio, if that's straightforward enough. And I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm also on my firm's website. My name is spelled a little bit unusually. It's Tannenbaum, T-A-N-E-N-B-A-U-M. It's not a double N. I think my grandfather didn't want to pay for the double N at Ellis Island. <laughs> we saved some space here. And then my law firm has another unusual name. It's Pulsinelli. Well, I heard, Bill, from excellent sources that you do a series of wonderful webinars. So I would suggest that our listening audience, if interested, hunts you down in all, any of the places aforementioned. Yeah. And I will say, if you go to the Pulsinelli website, uh, I put together a series of webinars this year on AI, machine learning, and data in healthcare. And there's eight webcasts in the series. And if you've missed one since we're up to four, they're available on the site, you know, on a free basis. You can just listen to them or get a copy of the PowerPoints. And then next year, we're going to be doing a series on digital medicine with uh, you know some focus on TEFCA, virtual hospitals. I will say that I think from a healthcare point of view, healthcare is kind of a fast and a little bit over-eager adopter of some of these technologies, but there's really cool stuff going on because it really affects patient outcomes and people don't want to wait. You know, as a lawyer, it's just fascinating because the technology is interesting. The need to be proactive at the contract level, you know, for the reasons I said, is what makes everything work. And at the end of the day, people get better. And that's the goal of the whole enterprise. So, you know, I hope what I've had to say has been useful. And it's, it's really been a pleasure speaking with you, Stacey. I, I enjoyed the opportunity very much. Likewise, Bill. Bill Tannenbaum, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.